Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On this week's show, we'll be looking back at the Mizano round of the MotoGP World Championship. And uh, I'm Stephen English, and I'm joined, as usual, David Emmett, Neil Morrison on the show. And David, just your quick thoughts on Mizano. It was a pretty big weekend for the MotoGP Championship to be back on track again. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good race, only a, a great MotoGP race, three great MotoGP races, uh, three Italian winners, which has got to be um, uh, a good thing for Italy. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's going to be remembered for uh, something which happened in Moto2 race rather than the racing. And Neil, what was your thoughts on the weekend? Um, yeah, similar to Dave, uh, really intriguing MotoGP race wasn't quite the all action, um, last lap sort of fighting that we've seen in recent rounds, but, uh, I think we saw definitive, definitive evidence that uh, Ducati is pretty much the best bike in MotoGP at the moment. And, uh, really we're looking at a championship, which is probably going to be, uh, won soon up by Mark Marquez, um, maybe after the second flyaway race. And, uh, we heard David just talk there briefly about the Romano Fanati instant and Neil obviously that was the big talking point after the race if you look basically over the entirety of Monday Sunday night you saw news cycles just dominated really by a Moto2 race and an instant mid-pack but it was something we haven't really seen before and hopefully we won't see again. Yeah I think it's something we haven't seen in modern era when races are televised and we get to see pretty much everything that's going on every lap of the race. I think if you go back to racing back in the 70s or the 80s, uh, club race, national race and things like that, this kind of thing wouldn't be, say, commonplace, but certainly would happen on occasion. Um, but for it to happen in front of the, the watching world, um, cameras uh, in the modern day, just, uh, yeah, it kind of caught us all, all by surprise. I mean, we know Romano Fanati has uh, a bit of a history of uh, having a short temper, there's been issues throughout his career where he's lost the head. Never in this way where it's actually at 100 and I think just under 140 miles an hour um, doing something really thoughtless, stupid and careless, um, which could have potentially put um, Stefano Manzi, um, his, you know, his life in danger, really. Um, so, yes, it was pretty ridiculous. And I have to say, in the last... Uh, the last day or so, just looking at all the news, especially the UK news, mainstream news, I've been really surprised at just the coverage that it's getting. Um, it's uh, all all media outlets really are focused on it, and from the BBC to the Guardian to Talksport, um, this has picked up quite a lot of traction. Same and, with uh, same with Dutch uh, with the Dutch media. It was on the it was on the Dutch uh, Dutch news. The Dutch uh, uh, Dutch TV tends not to cover much, uh, motorcycle racing except. Uh, for you know the Dutch TT at Assen, but yeah, they have the highlights. I think it was on CNN. It's been it's been on just about everything, which is you know a shame. But that's the that's the problem. It's a niche sport, and um, uh, the only time it really gets into into the news is when something surprising happens. Do you think in some ways, David, that uh, well, obviously, also at the pretty much the exact same time, there was a big story going around from the US Open with Serena Williams and her having a big row about sexism towards her from an umpire. There was two big stories about two basically on sportsmen like penalties and different things and just the kind of actions that nobody wants to see from any rider or any athlete. But when you look at, as Neil said, the, the whole watching world saw this whole situation unfold. How difficult is it to not have a quick reaction to it and to actually take the time to look at you know, the instant in its entirety. It seems like for any instant like this, we're all under a lot of pressure just to give your thoughts here and now. 
Oh well, um, uh, obviously Twitter was a uh, was the home of um, uh, well thought out, balanced, and nuanced uh, coverage of the uh, of the incident, with uh, nobody leaping to conclusions at all. That's the point about these things. People just immediately jump on it because it seems incredibly simple. What happened was Fanati uh, down the back straight leaned over and and, and grabbed Manti's brake. I mean, it's inexcusable and it's incredibly stupid, but. You know, you you don't talk about all the stuff that went uh, went before it. I think Manzi ran uh, Fanati wide a couple of times. You don't see the you don't get the context or the perspective of of, of you know Fanati's difficult year and um, just the, frust- the 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 frustration with racing with with people like Manzi. Manzi's got to be a bit of a, a reputation as some um, as someone who is a little bit reckless and careless. So yeah, there was very little nuance about it. People jumped on it straight away. Um, I mean, there's no excusing it, but I I think it's fractionally more complicated than people are making uh, making out to be. Yeah, and that's the thing, David. It's it's like anything else in racing. It seems very simple, as you said, and it's actually got a lot of complications involved. And Neil, we saw a, a two race penalty given to Fanati for the instant. But uh, in the immediate aftermath, you had calls from Cal Crutchlow saying that he should have a lifetime ban. You had Scott Redding, I think he had an Instagram poll just talking about the ban that should be given, whether it was harsh enough. We saw immediate response from pretty much everyone looking for, baying for blood for Fanati in this. Yeah, we did. Yeah, the the, the reaction was pretty severe. Um, I'm sure it's it's taken someone even like Fanati um, aback just the, the the kind of the, the severity of some of it. Um, I think Carlo Pernet, Andrea Inoni's manager, and a you know a staple in some of the Spanish and Italian media said that it was a um, you know it was something akin to attempted murder. You know, and I think yeah, as David was saying, there needs to be a little sense of perspective. It was hopelessly stupid. It was really careless. Um, and it should not be excused. He should, in my opinion, miss two races. I think race direction were possibly too lenient, but they did disqualify him pretty much immediately. And they handed out a pretty, um, a pretty severe. I mean, two race ban is, uh, is fairly unprecedented. We've seen riders, uh, forced to miss one race in the past, but to, to miss two, um, it's been uh, quite some time. I don't even know if there has been a two race ban for a rider in the past. Um, one of you guys might be able to correct me on that, but yeah, I don't um, think so. I think the most has been, uh, just a one race ban, which has been handed, hand- it out sort of you know rarely but on occasion yeah the guy has uh you know he's had his, his current um term uh, sorry he's had his current contract with uh marinelli snipers team con- um, terminated he's had his deal for next year with uh, forward racing envy augusta uh, cancelled um so he's basically um, set fire to his immediate career um and i think that um well he has uh he's messed up royally and he is paying the price for it because he's not really going to be on a, a racetrack again this year uh, it's questionable as to whether he'll be back next year um yeah I well, think, he, he's, uh, he's had the italian federation has withdrawn his license and uh, that they, as well. they, they, yeah. they've suspended his license so basically you know even if he wanted to race even if someone gave him a contract he wouldn't even be able to and you know we don't know how long the suspension is going to last um he's told italian media today uh, that he's retiring and he hates racing and he's never going back uh, which is exactly the kind of impulsive behavior which, which sort of you know persuades him to lean over and and grab someone's uh, someone's front brake so yeah, uh, it's uh, it's all a bit uh, it's all a bit strange. It is all very strange, they said, David. But just looking at like from a global perspective on Fanati, not so much at the actual incident that we've seen. Do you think is this one of those incidents that 
not so much what he did, but the fact that he did something can easily come from situations that you see arise with riders from certain countries, at least one of them, Spain's another, that once they have a couple of good races, they're immediately the face of ad campaigns, they're on TV, they're front page news, back page news in Italy, and they're immediately a big star. Fanati was that big star when he came on the scene as a 16-year-old, and then his star waned pretty quickly. He's been under pressure to try and get back to that level that he would feel he can race at, that he would feel that Basically, he's had you know a few years as a top Moto3 rider where he'd been told by Italian media, by ad campaigns, whatever you want to say, that he was going to be the next big star. Do you think does pressure of that sort of nature also play a role in any instance like this? Absolutely. I mean, the, it, I think it's almost inconceivable for most people to understand the situation these boys came in. I mean, like uh, Fanati was second in his first race at Qatar, his first Motor 3 race, uh, or his first Grand Prix. Uh, and then he won his second race by 38 seconds, uh, 36 seconds, I forget anyway, well over 30 seconds. It was just completely insane, especially the Italian and the Spanish press are extremely nationalistic and so, uh, or jingoistic. And so, uh, you know, any strong Italian rider. Also, uh, Fanati came in at a period where Grand Prix racing was being dominated by Spaniards in, in all three classes. And fortunately, that's waned a little bit. We've got a much better mix of, uh, of winners. And so he was sort of like, hey, he almost had the hopes of the, uh, of the nation of Italy on his shoulders at the tender age of 16. Now, I don't know what you were like when you were 16 but i was an i was a complete moron and a failure of a, of a human being and i mean you know i didn't really grow up until i was into my well into my late 40s the the pressure on them is just amazing and then it's much more difficult to accept you know really seriously poor results the kind of poor results that he's had i have to say neil judging by dave at his current age i can't imagine a situation where he was an idiot or a moron whenever yeah, he was 16. I, I i just can't picture i can't picture it at all in my head but you think of just, a perfectly rounded man by 14 <laughs> 15 surely just looking at uh just looking at the media center as well neil whenever it happened for anyone listening into this anytime that a race is going on we're all fans at heart we're all sitting there watching the action unfold in front of us your, your objective whenever you're writing, your objective whenever you're talking, but you get swept along once you're in the media center. What was the actual reaction within the media center between the, say, even like the local Italian press as this incident happened? Uh, well, you know, there was uh, a bit of shouting. Um, yeah, condemnation, I guess. A lot of people um, calling it out for what it was, which was, you know, something unexpected, um, unforeseen and well slightly unprecedented in their recent racing world um so yeah there was uh yeah i would say i would say pretty widespread condemnation and you look at the you look at the italian press and he's got a real kicking and you know deservedly so he has to own up for his actions um i'm just uh a little bit uncomfortable with the extent of attention this is getting and the effects that it's going to have on Romano's life. Like I spoke to him uh, last year um it was around this point last year actually just after he had won the um the the Grand Prix of uh, San Marino um, in the wet conditions dominated the race and I spoke to him the following round in Aragon and I was asking him a little bit about um, the fallout from Austria and what had gone on there and he was saying that the immediate aftermath of Austria he, you know, he hated the sport, he didn't want to have anything to do with it he was so disgusted with how he felt he had been portrayed in the media now you know, 
obviously he has serious management or sorry anger management issues um he hasn't been guided in the best way maybe isn't as intelligent as he needs to be uh, to make it at the absolute highest level of the sport because let's face it someone who is intelligent could be fit or could be prone to fits of rage but wouldn't do something like that um but yeah for a guy that's been born and raised brought up around motorcycles um the age of 22 to have that completely ruined and for your life to be completely empty i mean uh, you, you you don't want to rule out his future in the sport completely. I think that would be too too much, too unfair. Um, and to say that he should, you know, be banned for life, I think, is, is is way too far. Well, just for all the listeners at home, we have a WhatsApp group where over the course of a weekend we'll always talk about what's happening and things like that. But one of the questions that popped up in the group was whether or not a lifetime ban, an end of season ban, a two race ban was a fair punishment or what punishment you'd actually deal out to a rider and something like this. Now, David, we talked there a little while ago about the pressures that young riders are under, particularly in Italy, where they're made up to be a star. And like we see it in the British press as well, where whether it's footballers, whether it's pop stars, whatever it is, they're built up to be knocked down. And it seems that there's always that sect of a media that does take enjoyment in being able to write an attack article or anything like that I, I don't see too much of that really in the motorcycling industry but it is tough to find that balance and just going back to the punishment what do you think could be a fair punishment what do you think is the kind of treatment or support that Fanati needs because you can see from Neil what he's saying that uh, one of the key things is that we need to make sure that any kid that's you know 20 22 years of age that they understand the result of their actions but also that they're still able to still have a life the problem is that a lot of kids just don't have a life. And, uh, you know, what happens is parents take them racing when they're sort of six or seven, uh, and then they get quite good. And usually it's the parents who are incredibly ambitious and who are, who are pushing this on. Um, and you get, uh, you know, a little bit of the football. That they say, you see the same thing at football games or other sports games. Uh, there'll be parents along the side threatening to kill them, uh, threatening to kill referees. And it's the same It's the same in racing. You get, you get little kids doing insane things on bikes. And if uh, any of the, uh, you know, at local circuits and if any of the officials try to do anything about it, yeah, I mean, uh, parents uh, parents are straight in and screaming at them and, uh, and all the rest of it. So it's, it's just generally that there's a lot of pressure on very young kids to perform from a very young age. And also they're taken out of school when they are, what? I don't know, um, usually around sort of 12 or 13, once they get good, once it's obvious that they've got potential because they'll be doing something like Red Bull Rookies or they'll be doing, uh, you know, something similar. Uh, they'll be spending more time racing than might be in the Spanish Championship and be away from uh, from school a lot. It means they don't really get socialised. They don't get, or they don't get socialised in the same way that that normal kids do. Uh, they they spend a lot of time with families and uh, and all the rest of it. Dennis Noyes told me about when Kenny Noyes, his son Kenny, was racing in Moto Two. Um, he says, yes, we see all this these close battles at the front. We see a lot of outrage about what what happens there. But you would not believe what happens in mid pack because mid pack. That last point is the difference between having a ride next year and not having a ride next year, rather than uh, uh, rather than anything else. So, uh, and the cameras aren't on the people at in mid pack. The cameras are all watching the the, the battle at the front. And so, there's yes, there's there's a whole level of sort of you know nastiness going on, which 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 you can barely see. 
And it's that nastiness, I guess, that Fanati feels, um, which basically brought about his rage, isn't it? You know, he was uh, breaking for turn four. Manzi made a bit of a, I think Fanati was wide. Manzi uh, made an opportunistic move to get by and ended up losing the front, having to sit up and taking them both off the track temporarily. And uh, from there, uh, you know, Romano is, is uh, saw one of, um, uh, he did an interview with the Gazette de la Sport today and uh, today's Tuesday after the race. And he said that, you know, you want to see my leathers. It's a huge black mark where Manti had basically, you know, taken a lunge at me and hit me. And, um, this was just uh, the consequence of, uh, of that. But still, I mean, it is, that's not to excuse him at all. It's completely ludicrous what he did. But, um, but yes, this didn't just happen. You know, there was a bit of a backstory to that. And, uh, you know, as you said, David Manzi, I think has crashed 20 times this year is a bit of a wild child. Um, bit of a wild, riding style and um you know ex vr46 academy sorry Fanati is an ex vr46 academy rider manzi is obviously part of the vr46 academy uh Fanati was sacked from not just rossi's team but that structure um never really embraced that way of life and you have to imagine there's some sort of history here as well um which maybe needs to be considered when when taking this whole thing into account you know perhaps well, pure speculation here but you know perhaps these guys i'm pretty sure they don't get along they wouldn't he wouldn't do something like that if they did um or you'd like to think he wouldn't um but uh you know this you know motor two they you know they call it the, the sort of the toughest class in 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 world racing for a reason Dave, we heard Neil just talk there about the the narrative of the VR46 Academy as well. As you said, Neil, it is the toughest class in racing, but the VR46 Academy is also one of the toughest schools that you can go through as well. And do you think is is Fanati's story? We're hearing it being brought up an awful lot this week in terms of he fell out with the team, he had fights with his crew chiefs. There was a lot of other you know other issues that had happened within that team. But do you think, is that narrative being overplayed a bit? Maybe it, it was a case of the team wasn't right for him. What they were trying to make him do wasn't right for him or the team at the time. You you always hear the stories about how Aki Ayo was great at being able to turn people's careers around. But he doesn't turn around everyone's career because sometimes his solution isn't the best one for a young rider. Do you think, are we just overplaying the the instance that he had whenever he was a VO46 rider? That's a good point. I mean, to go back to Aki Ayo, uh, uh, case in point, Aki has had uh, both uh, both Binder brothers, Darren and Brad. Some people say that uh, Darren is the talented of the uh, uh, one of that of that pair, and yet it's Brad who won the championship because Brad fitted in really well with that Ayo's sort of mentality and his uh, his his working method. Nicolo Antonelli was another who, who failed. Um, uh, as I understand it, Fanati. Uh, was a part of the VR46 um, uh, structure, and one of the things that VR46 expects you to do is to go to Pizarro and live um, uh, live in one of the buildings there. And basically, uh, they have an entire program sort of built around you. Now, if you sort of don't fit into that uh, th- that way of living, I mean, for me, I would hate that because I. Th- don't well generally don't really like being around people and so being forced to uh, to sort of you know live in a group would be um, would be an absolute nightmare um so yeah if you don't actually fit into that if that doesn't suit your personality if your personality is not uh, is not sort of suited to that um then yes it can be difficult so i i, I think 
there was a large part of uh, Fanati's story, which is about, you know, being a little bit of an outsider. Also, the region that he's from is it, it's a little bit further, uh, further south. It's not that, uh, as I understand it, it's not that, uh, you know, that enclave around sort of uh, Rimini where, where so many of the races come, uh, races come from. It's, he, he's a little bit, he's a little bit of uh, an outsider. He, I, I think he just didn't fit in with the VR46 uh mentality and he'd never um be, be once certainly once he fell out of that group he never really had the people around him to give him the guidance and help which he needed to sort of like deal with his um uh, you know deal with his own personality deal with himself and manage himself in in such a situation just david you wrote a piece about Fanati last night and uh, published it today tuesday um just for you as a journalist writing for your site Moto Matters is obviously one of the more popular sites for MotoGP news but do you feel like you're under pressure whenever you're writing stories for this kind of an instant to get something out quick but then also to have it tampered by at least being able to see two sides of the coin? Uh, no, I gave up on being quick a long, long time ago because um, it's um, someone would always beat you. So I would rather take my time and sort of like write something which I find interesting. So, yeah, for me, it's difficult. What I find difficult is, or for me, it's different. What I find more difficult is um, trying to find the right perspective because you're trying to sort of, you know, understand the whole situation. And you, it, and no matter how well informed you are inside the paddock, you, you don't know all sides because everyone is keeping information from from you, which which is a little bit more difficult. So obviously, Neil, we heard David just talk about the right perspective that he needs to find. We did see Juan Mir offer an interesting perspective as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, Juan Mir today, Tuesday after the race weekend, wrote on Instagram um, quite a long post just about Fanati saying that uh, his penalty was deserved it was a stupid thing to do um, he needs to consider his actions um, but that he shouldn't be overly castigated and he feels that he should take some time away to to consider his actions and um, before uh, coming back stronger um, and Mir pointed to the fact that they were obviously both fighting for the Moto3 championship last year in uh, 2017 were rivals on track in several key battles through the year and uh, Mir was saying that uh, Fanati you know was uh, always perfectly clean um, didn't do anything crazy or untoward in the battles that they had shared together. Um, so I think that that's, that's something, um, something interesting to see because, um, you know, I think Finetti certainly would be a rider that would try and wind up some of his rivals on track. Definitely, you know, looking at Moto3 qualifying last year, there were several examples where he would just sit right behind the rider and they would be waving him by, you know, like, get out of my slipstream. I'm not towing you around. And he would almost slow down. I remember seeing one qualifying session in Barcelona last year where he, they basically, he was following Aaron Kennett, I think, and they were, they slowed down to about two miles an hour. They're almost a, a standstill in the main street. So, you know, there are aspects of his game where he does try to wind people up, I think, but um, for me to come on and say that, I mean, I think that is another example of why we shouldn't completely write him off and say that you should never be allowed back into the sport. It's also interesting. This was this happened between two Italian riders, and um, uh, I think the reaction might be a little bit different if it happened between us, an Italian and a, Span a Spanish rider. I think we would have seen a very different dynamic about it. I mean, you would have, would have expected people to start leaping to his defence if it had been Fanati involved with a Spanish rider than a uh, uh, than an, uh, than another Italian rider. So. That's, as I say, that sort of jingoism also comes into play and, and plays into the way that it gets the coverage. Yeah, that's some good points about Fanati, guys. But uh, luckily, there was also plenty of on-track action as well this weekend. And we saw another weekend dominated by Ducati. And uh, 
Neil, you mentioned earlier on, just in your little 30 seconds at the start of the show, that the Ducati now is clearly the best bike on the grid in the eyes of many. But uh, at Misano, we saw Davi pick up another home victory and uh, really did just show how much he's improved again over the course of the last couple of years. But uh, the package really has come along leaps and bounds. It really has for them to score wins at Brno and uh, the Red Bull ring in Austria. Uh, I think we had been expecting those guys to be really strong there and that wasn't a surprise. But for them to go to Silverstone, okay, Dovey won there last year, but for them to qualify first and second on the grid um, and then come to Misano, I mean, they haven't won a race at Misano since 2007. And sure, they tested at, uh, you know, on the Adriatic coast at the uh, the end of August, I think. But so did Yamaha um, and Cal Crosso did also. Um for them to potentially have a 1-2. I know Lorenzo crashed right at the end of the race, um, but for them to be looking at a second 1-2 in Italy, you know, it does show that that bike is working everywhere now. It's not just fast horsepower circuits. It's not just completely acceleration-dependent circuits. I mean, this is a tight, twisty track that does require a good deal of agility. Um, and it shows that, while well, the Desmond Sedici is probably the most agile it's ever been, really, um, since Giacchetti came into Grand Prix racing. And uh, I think I've mentioned this before, I said this before at some point during the year, but, you know, for two guys like Davizio and Lorenzo to be with, with two styles which contrast so much, for them to be competitive everywhere, um, I think does show that uh, they've put together something really special in uh, Bologna. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that um, uh, the Ducati does see a lot of styles because we see uh, Dovi and Lorenzo who, who have very, very different styles. I mean, um, Dovi's a really, really late breaker, uh, whereas uh, Lorenzo um, sort of breaks early but then uh, builds up to stop very, very late. Petrucci has been has got uh, has got podiums. Uh, Jack Miller's been really impressive on the bike. Tito Rabat, uh, before his unfortunate accident, uh, had a fair few flashes of real speed. So uh, clearly, the bike is best. And and you know, uh, at the end of the race, Mark Marquez said he thought the Ducati was the best package. Uh, the Ducati riders themselves admitted that they think that I, th- I think Dovi in Italian said that he thought the bike was the best bike on the grid. So clearly, it still has its um, shortcomings. It still doesn't really want to turn um but uh it's accelerated the acceleration is is just outstanding and obviously the uh the top speed um emojigp.com posted a uh, an onboard i think from Do- from dovish bike of, uh, of the start and you can see the way that uh, uh, what is it uh, turn six coming out of turn six onto the yeah, back the first lap. yeah of the opening lap the way i mean he, he blows by mark marcus as if uh, as if marcus is just completely standing uh, standing still and it's also worth comparing uh, sort of like the fortunes of the of the ducati with the uh, with the honda because you know mark marcus has won six races five five yeah Marcus has won five races. Cal Crutchlow has won one race. Um, uh, Crutchlow is having a good season, but he's still a long way behind uh, uh, behind the rest. Well, you know, Marcus is leading the championship, uh, um, uh, but uh, you know, there have been two or three riders on the Ducati who have because it's now three apiece for Dovi and for uh, for Lorenzo. Uh, yeah, clearly, it's it, it's a much more well rounded bike than uh, than any of the others. Yeah, Neil, you mentioned the last three races, obviously, Bruno, Austria, and then this weekend, the, uh, last weekend, the Mizano as well. But Qatar and uh, Catalonia and Magello were the other places where the Ducati has won. Like, it does point a, paint a picture of working at pretty much everywhere. And as you said, 
just in terms of having that package. What do you make of the the performance of the team? If they have the best package out there and the riders are struggling to keep up with Marquez in the championship, what does that point to what they need to have for the rest of the season? Um, well, I guess it... Yeah, it's sort of different circumstances. I mean, we could go through, um, you know, and, and, and analyse the, the performance of both the guys. You know, Lorenzo had a meltdown during pre-season and that sort of had lingering effects for about three rounds, first three rounds of the year. Whereas Dobby was just inconsistent. He had the unfortunate crash where he was taken on at Jerez, crashed when he wasn't taking enough care, in his own words, at Le Mans and then was sort of pressured into a mistake at Catalonia. So I think, you know, the package has been there pretty much from the start of the year, certainly on Dobby's side. Um, and it was just a mix of bad luck and also... Um, and also some careless mistakes that, that contributed to it. But like I said, I was going back and looking at, at the championship standings after this weekend. And, you know, um, Davizioso has three DNFs. Marquez has two non-scores. And yet Davizioso is, is really quite some way in arrears. And that is just the fact that, you know, his bad days, this is what we really suspected would happen at the start of the year. His bad days are fourth, fifth places, um, sixth, even if you look at somewhere like the Saxon Ring um, or uh, Circuit of the Americas, whereas Marquez's bad days are, I think he's had one third place. And the rest have been first and seconds. So there's the difference. Yeah, and David, just uh, in light of that, as Neil says, like if Marquez finishes, he's going to finish on the podium. And with Ducati, there is always that opportunity or the the chance where they might finish fifth, sixth position. But when you look at uh, the season as a whole so far, I think that uh, Marquez has spent nearly 250 laps on the podium, which is more than both of the Ducati riders put together, I think. It does just point to the job that Marquez is doing. And again, at the weekend, we saw a really strong performance by him. He knew what he could get out of the race, picked up his 20 points and just continued to lead the championship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he basically settled for 16 points, but then Lorenzo crashed out, just pushing a little bit too hard. Uh, so he picked up a, a, a sort of extra points. I mean... Marquez is it really is having an outstanding season. He is uh, what Marquez can do is is he can ride around problems when the bike is no good. I I interviewed Bradley Smith uh, over the weekend and asked him, you know, do you believe in aliens? And he said, no, 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 I don't believe in aliens. But he, he you know, if the setting is there, if the if the uh, if a rider has can has can have a good feeling with the bike. Um, uh, then they can do everything, uh, sort of everything with it. But he did say, you know, Casey and Mark, uh, Casey Stone and Mark Marquez, they, what they can do is they can actually still get everything out of the bike when they don't have a good feeling with the bike. And that's what makes them exceptional. And that's what, um, that's what Marquez has managed. Uh, you know, as Neil said, um, a bad day, he finishes, he finishes third, you know, a bad day for him is, uh, uh, is second. And, uh, he's been helped a little bit by other riders that taking points off each other and, and all the rest of it. I think in terms of the championship, um, two really key performances for Marquez have been at Catalonia and then at Misano last weekend because basically those are two race weekends when he knew that the best he could do was second place and that was an absolute push. And he knew that 
both Ducati guys were really strong in both of those racetracks. So what he did is he tried to upset uh, one of those Ducatis and tried to, to minimize the damage. Okay, if Lorenzo's going to win here in Barcelona, well, then I have to make sure that I beat Dovizioso or put him under as much pressure as possible. And lo and behold, Dovizioso makes a mistake and crashes out. Then he does the same at Misano. I mean, Lorenzo, it was interesting speaking to him after the race. He was convinced that, well, he, he seemed a little bit frustrated. Um, he said it was his own fault that it was this way. Um, but basically, Marquez knew that Dovizioso was going to win. He didn't have the pace to hold uh, to hold on to him. So what he did during that mid-race spell, when he was overtaking Lorenzo and everywhere he could, was just trying to disrupt his rhythm, mess him about a bit, and put him under as much pressure as possible. And we heard after Bruno Marquez saying, uh, it's impossible to take two Ducatis on, on the last lap, but if I can get one of them there, then I can handle that. And he's been very clever in managing that because Bruno is really the only time where he's had to defend off both of them um, at, at the same time. And, uh, well, you know, uh, he's, he's kind of forced mistakes out of them. The point is we see this in qualifying. We can see that what they have, what Marquez and his team are really good at is strategy. They are the ones who come with the, who innovate in in terms of strategy they you know they're the ones who started doing three runs instead of two during uh, during races to get to do two bike swaps they've tried little other little tactics either going out early or going out late looking for empty track or uh, trying to lead from the start i think also they're very very good at actually managing the race strategy they come to a racetrack with a plan and with an understanding of what's achievable and i mean they seem to start from okay what's the worst result that we could get here uh, and what can we uh, what can we do to go uh, do a little bit better, better than that um and they you know they keep on coming away with points as you said a bad day for Marcus is well a bad day for Marcus is second and a really bad day for Marcus is third um and that's that's the championship right there and uh, david you you mentioned there on on his good days he'll finish He'll win on his bad days, he'll finish second, and on his worst days, Marquez will finish third. Just sitting third in the championship at the moment still is Valentino Rossi on his Yamaha, and you know it's been what we'll all view as being a miserable season, but he, he keeps keeping himself in that title position, even if it is on what's been probably the most difficult season that, that we can really remember for Yamaha. You're probably going back to 2003 for a comparable season. But uh, even then, you look at Yamaha now and uh, it's one thing after the other with them and they just seem to consistently be not finding a solution and it all seems to come back just to the engine. Yeah, exactly. A combination of the engine and the electronics, I think. it's. Um, this, is the 20, this was the 22nd race in a row which they hadn't won, which matches their longest streak from 97 and 98. Yeah, they're sort of the opposite of um, uh, the opposite of Marquez. A good um, a good day for Yamaha is a podium, and a bad day is somewhere in the top ten. There is doesn't seem to be any end in sight for their uh, problems at the moment. Yeah, I mean, what can you what what can you say? They're just they're just in a real uh, uh, issue. And also, I interviewed them, um, uh, Matteo Flamini, the uh, Rossi's uh, data guy, uh, this week, and he and he said, you know, just looking at his data, talking to him, watching him ride, he's um, he's riding better than he's ever done before. It's just that the level of the competition is higher, and you know they're still having problems with the bike, especially with tire wear. Neil, one of the things that we did here, David, as you said, like the engine, the electronics. And the uh, tyre wear being an issue, we heard Maverick Vinales talk about 
in the race, just once he gets into the race, he's, he started to have issues with the brake and the stability from the bike. But uh, for Yamaha, how much of that just comes down to the fact that whenever you're in a race situation, you're having to battle with someone else. It's not about the, the ultimate time you can do. We saw Vinales qualifying in the front row, but you know, qualifying is one thing, racing a very different perspective, a different challenge for all these teams now. David, as you said, we've probably never seen as competitive an era as this in MotoGP. Rossi's had to raise his game. Vinales probably has raised his game, but not to the level where we've been able to really see anything from him over the course of the last few races. This was probably one of the, the first times in a long time where we saw Vinales at least still able to to hang in that second group. Yeah, true, yeah. Um, I mean, it is quite normal to see Vinales go backwards at the start of the race, not able to carry the speed of uh, the front three. Um, but I think the real condemnation this weekend was that Rossi was just so far away as well. Um, had it not been for Lorenzo's crash, eighth place. Um, I think you would have to go back to 2011, his first year with Ducati, to find a race where he was so far off um, the front at his own Grand Prix at Mizano. I mean, you know, he's good there. Yamaha have a fantastic record at Mizano. Vinales was on pole there last year. Had it not rained, you would have fancied him being on the podium. Um, you know, the year before, both Yamahas were on the podium. 2015, if it didn't rain, Lorenzo probably would have won. And the race at Mizano, um, in Austria was a disaster. But that, in terms of layout, is a track that going to um, exaggerate Yamaha's weakness uh, more than any other. Whereas this race weekend, I felt, was just, um, yeah, it was bad. And it was worrying because it sounded a lot like last year. Last year, the performance of the M1 differed quite drastically going from day to day when temperatures changed, whenever there was more rubber laid down the track after a Moto2 race. You would see Vinales of Valencia last year fastest on the first day of testing and nowhere on the second day because the grip had changed just slightly. This seemed to be another one of those days um, where another one of those weekends where he was so fast Friday, Saturday, then goes out on Sunday. Track temperature is more or less the same. I think there's two degrees difference in track temperature between FP4 when he was fastest and the race. Um, and um, he had no rear grip whatsoever. Um, and I mean, it's just uh, another back to the drawing board moment. Um, you know, where can they go from here? Yeah, I mean, the issue really seems to be grip. And this has been coming for, oh, I don't know, maybe for maybe four years or so, four or five years, uh, we used to, um, I remember sitting with, uh, with with Dennis Norris and trying to figure out, you know, whether this was going to be a Yamaha track or a Honda track. And at a certain point, we came to the conclusion that um, it really wasn't whether it was hot or cold. Uh, it was about level, it was about grip levels. Uh, the Yamaha, when there is grip, is probably the best bike on the grid. The problem is that when there's no, or w when the grip is reduced, it's not the. It's no longer the strongest. It suffers much, much more than um, uh, than some of the other bikes, uh, and, and that causes, yeah, that that causes big problems. Um, it causes especially big problems for. Um, for Rossi and and uh, Vinales, and because it seems to be the the it, it seems to be a very very sort of steep threshold. So you know, it, the drip grip only has to drop a little bit, and the, that's the end of any chance the Yamaha might have. Whereas the Honda is outstanding with low grip, also especially Marquez is excellent with no grip because that's uh, you know he does all that flat track, um, and the Ducati just has so much mechanical grip just from the design of the bike. Um, uh, that, that they it's never really a, it's never really a problem for them 
Neil, just uh, in terms of what David was talking about there as well, one of the biggest issues that any team has now at the minute is always going to be the fact that your engine regs are sealed and you can't make significant changes to the engines. How big of a factor is that for Yamaha as well? Yeah, it seems to be a pretty huge factor. Um, all year, Rossi and Vinal has been complaining about the electronics, about how the, the bike can't really manage its tyres uh, so well. Um it was at Austria when it was put to Rossi that they might have messed up the, the engine configuration that he said that, yeah, that, that, that is entirely possible. Um, and it seems that way because there haven't really been any upgrades to help this. I mean, Yamaha, prior to 2016, were, were sort of known that at Aston there would be an upgrade that would take their bike to the next level and would push them up you know, a notch higher. We haven't seen that in the last three or four years. We haven't seen that since 2015. Uh, 2016, 17, 18, Rossi noted on Sunday how Honda and Ducati have both taken big steps during the year, whereas Yamaha, it's almost like they've stayed still or even gone backwards. Yeah, it just makes you wonder how it got to this, how it got to this stage. I mean, we've seen Honda make mistakes with their engine. Um, in 2015, we saw Suzuki last year. Um, Matt Oxley's written a good article on this today on the Motorsport Magazine website. It, it does. It does seem that that is uh, certainly one of the things uh, that has penalised them. And you know, there's no real end in sight. The end in sight will come at, uh, at Valencia whenever the season's finished, and they can uh, wheel out their, their 2019 engine. Which they'll have to hope is actually better, because there's no guarantees that it will be. Yes, and and just to, something quickly, sorry to add, um, it was interesting to read uh, an article by uh, Jaime Martin who writes uh, for. Spanish Sports Daily Marker, um, Yamaha were at Aragon uh, prior to Mizano testing there with uh, several other factories, Suzuki, KTM, uh, Ducati among them. And uh, yeah, it does seem that, uh, you know, of the the engines that they brought, uh, you know, Vinales was still looking for the engine that he had that most... um, uh, that was more similar to what he had at the start of 2017. And you just wonder whether that's the, the same thing that Rossi would want. And you, and you do worry about the, the setup direction, both riders pulling in different directions. And we've obviously spoken about that a lot before, but it seems that that isn't going to go away. Yeah, I mean, it may well be that those two are not compatible in terms of bike development. They want uh, two different things. Uh, Vinales wants a really aggressive bike and um, and Rossi wants a really smooth bike. Okay, well, that uh, brings us nicely to a new segment on the show as well, David, MotoGP Monologues. And uh, within this section, we're going to spend, everyone's got 60 seconds to have the floor to themselves to talk about a key topic for the weekend. Now, David, one of the topics that we have for this is actually going to be, will Yamaha win a race in 2018? So you've 60 seconds, Dave. Uh, will Yamaha win a race in 2018? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, the tracks where they might have won a race, um, I think, are already gone. Uh, the only other place where they might succeed is uh, Phillip Island. But, um, uh, you know, no one is beating Mark Marquez around Phillip Island at the moment, unfortunately. Um their problem is fundamental. It's actually inside the engine. Um, they've had electronics upgrades which have helped, but um, it hasn't helped. Uh, or it, it it can't solve the fundamental problem, which is which is the engine. The engine is just too aggressive. Um, the and the problem seems to be with the engine braking. Uh, they need a new crankshaft or uh, uh, some way of adding sort of mass to the engine internals, and there's just no way they can do it. So no, it is basically zero wins for Yamaha. 
David, I'll tell you what, that is possibly one of the most impressive things I've ever seen you do. Anyone that reads Moto Matters knows how much of a struggle it is for you to be concise. You managed to keep it to exactly a minute, and it set a big ask now for Neil on his section. So, Neil, just looking at uh, one of the big stories we saw on Sunday was about test riders and uh, how Casey Stoner looks like he's going back to Honda and Danny Pedrosa is going to be the new KTM test rider. Obviously, we've heard about the Pedrosa rumour, but what's your thoughts on just this uh, game of musical chairs with test riders? We're seeing Bradley Smith. He's moved to Aprilia as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we've seen um, the success of Ducati really in recent years, having someone as competitive as Piero and the difference that he's able to make. Um, it's no longer sufficient to have a test rider that can lap within three seconds, say, of the uh, the full-time riders. You need to have a guy that could possibly challenge them on a race weekend, and Piero's been capable of that in the past, and look where Ducati are now. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's a little surprise. KTM might be feeling that um, although Paul Spargo and Bradley Smith are really good riders, they're not absolute elite riders that have won multiple world championships and multiple MotoGP races. Danny Pedrosa could offer a fresh perspective on that um, on that bike. And uh, Dave, I think, spoke to Mike Leitner, the team manager, uh, who obviously used to be uh, Pedrosa's crew chief for many years um, in the past. And Leitner said that he is just... Such a because he's so small, he is incredibly sensitive, able to pick up the smallest changes, and uh, they feel that alongside Michael that could make a, a real difference there. So um, yes, I hope that answered the question, Steve. Yeah, you, you did just about Neil, and you just about managed to keep it under the minute as well. But Dave, for you, this is going to be the challenge in one, David. We saw it uh, during the press conference on Thursday about uh, Valentino Rossi refusing the handshake from Mark Marquez. Is this something that anyone really should give a damn about? Well, whether they want to give a damn about or not, that's completely up to them. But um, this is this is the situation. The situation is not going to change. Uh, Valentino Rossi has not forgiven Mark Marquez for what he believes is ruining his 2015 championship. Um, uh, Mark Marquez... I think would like a reconciliation, but is has way too much pride and ego to actually um, to actually admit any guilt if there was any guilt involved. Um, uh, for him, the annual reconciliation would come through a full apology from uh, from Valentino Rossi. Hell will freeze over and pigs will fly before that happens. So yeah, no, this is this is the situation, and journalists will keep on asking them to keep on shaking hands. Uh, Marquez will offer to shake hands. And Rossi will refuse it, and that's how it's going to be in the future. Okay, thanks, David. And uh, Neil, we've managed to all keep to the time limit in this, but the last topic is all about time limits and 107%. And Christian Ponson making his MotoGP debut. He'd never sat in the MotoGP bike before opening practice on Friday, but uh, we did see a lot of discussion online, a lot of social media conversations about whether or not he was fit to race in MotoGP. If there's 107% time, is that the only thing that matters for whether or not you're fit to race in MotoGP? Uh, no, I don't think that should be the only thing. I think that needs to be uh, lessened somewhat. Um, I think David made the point over the weekend, which was uh, which is quite true, that um, you know we're dealing with basically the, the closest, tightest MotoGP field in history. Uh, things have never been as close. The factories are all uh, very, very minutely separated. Um, and I think the rules could be 
changed a little bit to uh, to kind of uh, accommodate this. Uh, Ponson, I felt really sorry for him over the weekend because he was the, the basically the whipping boy. Everyone was saying that he shouldn't really be there. It was obviously no fault to the, of his own. He's not going to turn down the chance to ride a MotoGP machine, but for him to turn up on Friday morning um, was a huge ask. You know, I want to say compliments to him because I think in the first session he was 7.4 seconds off. He was, I think, 4.6 seconds off the quickest race time, or the, the quickest lap time in the race. So I think he did a, a fairly commendable job. But yes, they need to look at future um, possibility. Um, sorry, they need to look at future possible replacement riders and make sure that they're up to a certain scratch. Ponson, I'm not sure whether he is. Well, Neil, unfortunately, you were well outside the 107% time on that one. <laughs> So we're in one of the most competitive eras of MotoGP, David, but uh, brings us nicely to winners and losers. And uh, who's your big winner from this weekend? Uh, well, it's tempting to say um, uh, Dovi because he rode just an outstanding race um, uh, from from start to finish and just managed the the whole thing and came away as a winner. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to go with what has become almost uh, almost custom for me, which is Mark Marquez, because once again. Um, he looked like he was going to finish third because he couldn't really beat uh, uh, Lorenzo. He pressures Lorenzo into a crash, so he ends up finishing second. Um, and because Lorenzo crashes, he ends up extending his championship lead. His championship lead is now sixty-seven points, and it looks like he's going to be—he's um, going to wrap up the championship in Mategi at Honda's home race, which is exactly what uh, what what HRC would like uh, would like of him because it'll be in front of in front of all of the Honda big bosses so yeah I mean every once again everything despite it being a quite a difficult weekend for Marquez really he still ends up um uh he, he still ends up coming away the winner for me and Neil for you uh another Honda rider I'm gonna have to go with uh Carl Crutzlow after getting uh Admittedly, a somewhat fortuitous podium finish, second podium finish of the year, but another really strong weekend and basically the only guy um, that was able to live with uh, the, the the front three who've, who've kind of dominated the second part of the season so far. Cal, I think if you look at his season, um, of the races he's finished, there's only been one when he's been outside the top six. That was at Le Mans when he had that horrific crash just before qualifying on Saturday. He finished eighth there. You know, I think top six would have been a safe bet there. Even in the three races that he's crashed out of, he has had top six potential, if not more. Um, was desperately unlucky with the whole thing playing out as it did at Silverstone because he would have been on the podium hunt there. If it was dry, maybe even more, maybe he would have been fighting for the win. Um, and this is, uh, it's his most consistent season to date in MotoGP. Um, and as he said several times, everywhere we've gone, he's been competitive. And, and Steve, what about yourself? Uh, Moving on to your winner of the weekend, who would you go for? I'd have to go for Fanadi's sponsors just because of all the coverage <laughs> they got. It wasn't a bad weekend for them. But um, in terms of on-track action, I'll actually go for Jorge Martin as my big winner because even though he had that uh, crazy moment on the run to the start-finish line and uh, missed out on taking the race win, he did see his big rival, Pisecki, have a crash and he was able to pick up 20 points, retake the championship lead. So... Even though he could easily be the biggest loser for this weekend, Jorge Martin for me was the big winner. But in terms of those biggest losers, Neil, who was yours? Um, well, I mean, there were several big ones. Uh, I mean, Fanadi, obviously, you know, 
he lost his job and his job for next year. So that's pretty comprehensive. Um, but we've spoken about him already in great detail. Um, so I think I'm going to go for Danny Pedrosa just because this was... Uh, well, you know, by recent form, not a bad showing for Pedroza, but I guess that just shows you the difficulties that he, uh, the difficulties that he is currently undergoing. Uh, sixth place, 17 seconds off the race win, and this was at Mizano, a track that's been really good to him in uh, in recent years. Well, not last year in the wet, but in the dry in recent years. Of course, he had that brilliant, brilliant win, uh, Mizano, back in 2016 in similar hot, searing conditions. And there was some point this season where we thought, you know what, Pedroza's in a bit of a lull. He's obviously been affected by the fact he's lost his job for next year. Don't worry, we'll get to the end part of the year. There's lots of tracks that he likes, he's good at. We'll see the old Pedroza before he retires. Um, now that thought, well, that, that was my thought. That is in serious doubt because Pedroza is so far away from the leaders. And Mizano, is he really going to be that competitive at Aragon, Motegi? Um, Sepang and Valencia tracks which he normally excels at um, so yeah I think Pedroza it's just it's been a, a miserable final year of MotoGP for him and Dave for you as Neil said obviously uh, Fanati is the big loser of everything but I mean he, he he's so far beyond the biggest loser that he's in a sort of class of his own uh, for me it'd have to be uh, Bezeki because Bezeki was uh, you know leading the championship looking comfortable he was comfortably in the front group throughout that Moto3 race and he ends up throwing it away unfortunate he's made his life very very difficult now Bezeki is clearly an exceptionally talented um, uh, a rider but the uh, momentum of the championship is starting to swing in in Martin's way, uh, sort of in, in in Martin's direction this way. Uh, Martin is getting fitter; he's getting less and less. He's having less and less problems with the with the injury in his hand. Um, so he's you know this would have been a really good place for uh, Bezeki to actually um, uh, get some uh, get some points back on him. So yeah, this um, uh, for me, uh, yeah, definitely Bezeki. I think. Yeah, yeah, four crashes and races this year for Bezeki, and they've all either been on the last lap or the penultimate lap. Really big mistakes, critical times in the championship and critical times of races, um, which shows you that I guess he's just not quite the finished package that we would uh, that we at times thought he might be this year. And yourself, Steve, can't dispute with either of them, but uh, for me, I like. I'm actually gonna I'm gonna have a bit of a, a strange one for my biggest loser from the weekend. It's actually Stefan Bradle for me because. What's Bradle's job? He's a test rider. What's the one thing he has to do? It's finish races, get as much information as possible. His last two outings as, as a tester, he's crashed out of both races. We've seen, obviously, the news about Danny Pedrosa to KTM. We've seen lots of speculation about Casey Stoner to Honda. So much like in the, the same vein as what Neil was talking about with Romano Fanati, when you lose your job, it's a pretty bad weekend. Uh, for Stefan Bradle to have had this weekend... That's for me one of the big losers because Honda need that information and need that data. As we said at the top of the show, the Ducati's clearly the best bike on the grid right now. If it's not for Mark Marquez, Honda are nowhere right now. Like I think if you look at uh, the season as a whole, you've probably had 15 laps where Crutchlow's been in podium positions. You've probably only had a, a couple of laps for Danny Pedrosa on any of the roster spots. So Honda clearly are lagging well behind in terms of what that bike actually needs they need a test rider that can do the job and Stefan Bradle unfortunately for him over the two races that he's had in uh, recent months he hasn't been able to get the job done uh, it's a good point about the uh, about the race crashes this is one of the reasons why um, 
uh, KTM are, are taking Danny Pedrosa um, because they don't want to give uh, riders wild cards anymore. Because when you give uh, when you give a test rider a wild card, especially someone like Calio and especially like Bradle, what they're doing is trying to impress in the race because they really want to be racing again. They want to get back onto a bike for uh, full time. So they're, they're not actually doing the job of a test rider. They're doing the job of someone who is auditioning for a um, uh, for a ride for for next season. Uh, and as you rightly point out steve that has some pretty serious has a really big downside okay well that's uh it for today's show guys neil thanks for joining us yes thanks very much steve yep cheers for having me as always and dave thanks for joining us thank you very much uh, steve and uh, have fun in portimao how could you not have fun in portimao always <laughs> one of the best tracks to go to and uh, one of the best rounds you can go to as well nice Nice seaside atmosphere down in Portimao, but you guys have a, an extra weekend off before Aragon and always a nice race before the start of the flyaways. So it'll be busy times for all of us over the course of the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll make sure that there's another Paddock Pass podcast out as soon as possible. But uh, if you want to make sure that you're able to keep up to date on when the next show will be, just uh, keep an eye on our social media channels at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us on facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. And uh, we'll make sure to let you know when the next show is ready to go out. You can also follow us on iTunes. Give us a rating. It makes it easier to find. And it also means that we can move even further in front of the Two Enthusiasts podcast as well. (laughs) But uh, thanks for listening. And until next time. Bye. I think I am going. To, I'm, I'm going to go for Mark just because, um, uh, you know, you're he, so original. Yeah, well, he finishes. <laughs> look, he was going to finish third. He ends up finishing second, and um, and he extends his lead in the championship. I believe the only thing that was missing there was so there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. As for losers.